is Gleason 6 prostate cancer cancer. So many have argued that, hey, why are we even calling Gleason 6 cancer? No one really dies from Gleason 6 prostate cancer. And one of the main thought leaders in that regard is Dr. Scott Egner, who is a co-director of the U Chicago Medicine uh, High Risk and Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinic Program, which provides a focused care for men at high risk for prostate cancer and those with advanced disease. Scott's research has resulted in over 250 publications, a lot having to do as of late with this notion of, you know, Gleason 6 prostate cancer not being life-threatening though pathologically, it looks different than normal cells, and it looks cancerous. We discussed this notion of calling Gleason 6 prostate cancer, why we should not, in his argument, as opposed to a previous recording with Dr. Adam Keibel, who said, no, absolutely, we should call Gleason 6 prostate cancer cancer. Of course, the, the word cancer invokes anxiety and depression, all kinds of emotion and stability. And that's why we're even having this conversation. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Scott Egner from the University of Chicago on why we should not call Gleason 6 prostate cancer cancer. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my intention and my goal to help you with your prostate health and how to live better with age. We have our guy, Scott Egner. Scott, little do you know that I've been, um, sometimes I go on on my own and sometimes I have amazing guests that of course, people that you know, and I, your name is dropped here and there. So I think my audience actually, they've been waiting patiently a lo- for a long time for this conversation with you. So thanks so much for being on. As you know, I'm a big fan of you and your work and contribution. So it's a pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much, brother. Where do we start? Yeah, by the way, you're, I think we linked up on, on Twitter. I guess now it's known as X. I don't know. And, and you're very active there and you you talk about many things and you post many things. I think every time I post on anything lifestyle related, you you share. So you're a big fan of lifestyle medicine and you practice it for to a large extent. But one of the things that you kind of where you pop the most is this notion that, you know, Gleason six is not cancer. Let's not even call it cancer. And so you're the leading Matt you know, Cooperberg, you know, is a fan of that and he talks about that. But you're the leading voice in that notion that in that concept that Gleason 6, we, we shouldn't call it a cancer. Uh, you've written about it in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Great paper. So let's start with this, Scott. What is cancer as it relates to the prostate? Let's start there because we know that cancer you know, uh, is a malignant tumor that can metastasize. And we, well, that's a kind of general concept. But as it relates to prostate cancer specifically, what, what's the definition? What, what is it exactly in that in tissue or gland? That makes it cancerous? It's a phenomenal question, and I think it depends who you ask. So, if you ask pathologists and many clinicians, it's a strict histologic definition, meaning under the microscope, either meets the criteria or doesn't, and therefore it is cancer or it isn't cancer. You may ask many others, myself included, I only want to know if a cancer is in my body, and we're going to call it cancer if it has some potential to eventually change my quality of life or quantity of life. And if so, tell me about it. Diagnose me, and we'll make some based on it. And that's the premise of this 
initiative that I and many others are trying to push forward and force the conversation of, you know, should we be calling this very earliest stage of prostate cancer, this grade group one or Gleason six, should we be labeling it cancer and all the downstream effects that come from it? Because some people think we may be doing more harm than good. It's not a matter of so, – so the pathologist – and by the way, Adam Kibble, who I had on, he said – what did he say? He said the proof – the burden of proof is on Scott and people with his concept and his way of thinking, not uh, on us. So what the definition that I think it's the right definition, which is you know, there's a molecular signature that shows that it's cancer, period, end of story. So I guess based on your definition, that debate will probably go on for for a long time. You know, the good news is Adam and I are close friends. Uh, we spend a lot of time together and we just disagree on this. And that's fine. That's part of the discussion. But counter to all those comments, I mean, there are molecular signatures of precancerous lesions in the prostate that are shared with high-grade prostate cancer. And no one's pushing that we should be calling high-grade pin prostate, even though it shares some abnormalities with potentially lethal prostate cancers. And just because we've always done it this way doesn't mean we should hang on to it. And there are many examples in prostate, in bladder, in kidney, in thyroid, in cervical, where we came to our senses and we realized we're doing more harm than good and we need to change the names of some of these things. And we've done them. I mean, there's a reason there's no more Gleason 2 through 5. And I can give you the examples in all the other cancers. And if our main focus is on patient health and well-being, I mean, I'm obviously, I thought long and hard about this for many years, and I wouldn't tell anybody about it because it was so outlandish. But now, as you know, I'm shouting it from the rooftops because I think, I mean, my hypothesis and our hypothesis is public health would dramatically improve if we can ever get to the point where we change the name of, you know, Gleason 6, grade group 1. And it's an old discussion. It's been published in the literature intermittently for the last 15 years. No one's just pushed it forward, and that's what we're trying to do. Let's talk about different Gleason 6 scenarios, right? And then we'll, when, then I'm going to present to you a case that I had today with a guy with a Gleason 6. At what point would you say that you do a biopsy, comes up Gleason 6? When would you say, I'm not sure that is a, you know, Gleason 6, I think this guy needs to be treated. Is there ever a point, for example, Pyrat 5 in an MRI, and you can see some lesions there that look really cancerous on the MRI, but you biopsy is Gleason 6. Is that guy a candidate that you would want to treat? Who, who's that guy with a Gleason 6 that you would treat? So you're absolutely right. And even though I think the overwhelming majority of men diagnosed with Gleason 6 would be better off if we called it something else and we continued to monitor them, I absolutely would agree with you. There are very rare patients that are diagnosed with Gleason 6 where treatment is warranted. And I do a lot of treatment of prostate cancer. And I would say two or three times a year, there's someone where their biopsy showed Gleason 6, but we treat them. And those are patients that you're already aware of. You know, they've got three family members that died of prostate cancer. They've got a BRCA2 mutation. Their PSA density is high. They've got a huge Pyrads 5 lesion that you either want to resample or you're just convinced there's something real there. Or they're, you know, really high volume. It's extraordinarily rare, rare, but they have 40, 50 millimeters of Gleason 6, and they're young, and you know they're going to get treated. Our utopian dream of the name change ever comes. In my opinion, those patients can still get treated. Pick whatever name it's going to be in the mm-hmm. future. But it would be the equivalent of what's done now in breast cancer, where there's 
quote unquote prophylactic mastectomies because they have some lesions, they have high risk features, they have a strong family history, they have a germline mutation, and it makes sense to treat them. And so I do agree with you, there are a handful of patients relatively rare in modern times with Gleason 6, where I think it's perfectly reasonable and appropriate. Wow, okay. That's not the answer that I expected. Um, so that's great. And then you answered the question for the patient that we saw today, actually, because he's a 53-year-old man with a Gleason 6. PSA density is very high. For the audience, and you've been listening to my podcast, PSA density is what you're trying to differentiate is the, whether the high PSA is associated with just a big prostate or if it's associated with prostate cancer. So the cutoff number is roughly, I don't know if it's still the case, Scott, but it's 0.05. It's, if it's much higher than 0.05, it's likely associated with prostate cancer. If it's lower, then it's not. Is that still the number you go by with PSA density, Scott? Roughly, it's a it's a good general rule, but you know, as you're aware, it's a continuous yeah. risk. There's no right. magic point like oh, 0.14, they're golden. Right. 0.16, right. we got to right. act on it. So, kind of as it gets higher, you get more and more concerned that you're missing something or that the, a, a real. So his PSA there. density is 0.19. His PSA is 5.3. He's a 53 year old male. His pirate score on the MRI was four. His biopsy came up Gleason sick. We had it reread in our at our institution at NYU, and it showed that he was positive for a cribriform pattern. For the audience, cribriform pattern, and you can just course correct here, Scott, as you wish, is a pattern that a pathologist will see that suggests that it's probably a lesion or a cancer that's more aggressive than just a Gleason score. That might more or less there, Scott. Spot on. And cribriform generally denotes something in a healthy individual that warrants treatment. I personally have never seen it in conjunction with Gleason 6. It's always when there's pattern 4, you know, some element of Gleason 7. But everything you're telling me, that guy may very well have, you know, Gleason 7. The pathologist at NYU reread his tissue, and they upgraded it to a Gleason 7, 3 plus 4, with positive group. Makes sense. Which kind of, you know, now... It's like, okay, we, you know, because things were not making sense even to me. PSA density, Pyrat 4, so everything got missed and there's only a Gleason 6. Of course, the patients that come to me, Scott, as you know, they want me to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. <laughs> they want me to tell them, oh, yeah, no, you're perfect for, uh, you know, just do natural therapies and, and so forth, which of course I do, but it's, mo but it's in conjunction to trying to figure out what they really have and try to nav help them navigate through the process. Um, you know, patients have trust issues with you guys, Scott. I don't know if you know that. And you know what? We have a long history of leading people to think that way. So <laughs> try to meet them where they are and understand where that comes from. I, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. So with him, with this patient, I said, look, I think that I'm not sure that you have a true Gleason sick uh, based on all the data. And then if, when we got the information back, it was a three plus four, probably considered in this case, low, it's considered GG2. Gleason grade two, low risk, low intermediate risk. And that's another conversation. So I had Sinhaj on from Maryland and we discussed Gleason 7 cancer and active surveillance there. So that would be this case. And that's a story for a different day with us. But briefly, actually, you can say, you know, do you put a lot of guys with Gleason 7, low risk Gleason 7 on active surveillance? More than I ever used to. And, they're not. and what I explain to these guys when they're diagnosed is, here are your multiple options. One of those is, is active surveillance. And here's my estimated risk of you getting burned by that approach over the next 10 to 15 years. And I quantify it. I put a number on it. It goes into their chart. Some guys say, sign me up. That's what I want to do. And others say, no, thanks. 
I'd rather do treatment and I know what the package of treatment might entail. Ironically enough, I was in the operating room today removing a couple prostates for relatively low volume Gleason 7. And I was telling our team in there, gosh, it's, you know, you go into this field to, you know, cure people of cancer and it's very reasonable to treat people with Gleason 7. I offer surveillance, but I know that for every, you know, you know, it takes a larger group of men that I'm treating for Gleason 7 for one of them to actually, you know, have their life saved or prevent a metastasis from it. I wish we could pick that person out, you know, you know, preemptively, but you end up treating a lot to help, you know, fewer. What? So what? So with a guy with a Gleason 6, a true Gleason 6 prostate cancer that needs to be treated either because a strong family history or germline mutation, BRCA2 mutation, cribriform, as we discussed before, high PSA density, whatever the reason. What's your position on focal therapy? Because some people that are proactive, maybe proactive surveillance would say, oh, you still could be an active surveillance. So if that's the case, why don't we do a focal therapy and you know leave the prostate intact? What's Do you do focal therapies yourself? And if you don't or do, would you recommend focal therapy for for a Gleason six cancer that needs to be treated? Yeah, I, it's a great question, and I have a lot of thoughts on focal therapy. And we, as you know, we could do a whole hour on focal therapy. I've mixed focal therapy. So first of all, I'm a huge fan, and always have been a big fan of studying it appropriately, collecting data, particularly in a trial setting. And we treated our first patients at the University of Chicago back in 2009 with focal therapy. And we've offered many different modalities of focal therapy, both in trials and outside of trials. I think it has a strong foundation to study it, collect data, be honest with patients on what's known and unknown about it. And if they choose to do it, fine. We have had multiple trials. We have a more upcoming. There will actually be some randomized trials eventually. But what I don't like, and you know this and we've seen it, is, you know, kind of the good old healthcare system in the U.S. where, you know, it's it's growing substantially. There's a lot of patients that are seeing kind of one-trick ponies that are being sold on focal therapy for all the wrong reasons, aren't getting the full package on what we know and don't know about it, are told it's the holy grail, and there's a, often a cash payment with it. And that just really bums me out more than anything else. So right. again, a fan, but in certain circumstances as an option amongst other options. Scott, I did a pro an episode on my own. And the title of that episode from my podcast was why I love Gleason 6 prostate cancer. The reason and the main point that I try to make is the following. And of course, your name, I dropped your name there as to, you know, prostate cancer shouldn't even probably be, should be called cancer. And then that's it for the reasons that you've highlighted and written about. But I tell you, men get really motivated when they hear that C word. And now it's a Gleason 6. It's the C word. So they are, I believe, one of the most compliant group of people that I know. And their overall health. We were talking about the study on HIT, high intensity interval training in men on active surveillance, a randomized trial, how that seems to, you know, to have anti-cancer signals from that type of exercise. These men do it, right? It has to be catered to their abilities and their level of baseline fitness, but they do it. They do everything. They lose weight if they have to lose weight. Their cardiovascular risk improves. I mean, you know, so if there's any reason why I'd like the term is for a very non-scientific reason is like, man, these guys get going. 
Your thoughts? It's a great point. It's largely a missed opportunity across the country. People like you who are attuned to this capitalize it and help the guys help themselves by having them kind of locked in, being attentive, and you can hit them with all these things that might be helpful for their prostate cancer as well as all their other health conditions. We haven't talked about this, but I'm guessing you say a lot of the same things that I do, such as here are some things that can help your overall health. Hey, front and center in your brain right now is this prostate cancer, but let me be a straight shooter with you. It's not in the top five of the things that are at, you know, at risk for causing you problems over the next 10 years. Let's try addressing some of those things with your other doctors. Last thing, I wrote an op-ed along with Laura Esserman, a very well-known breast surgeon, it was published a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times, and she's the one that's taught me and we wrote in the op-ed, you know, she writes about DCIS of breast cancer and myself with Gleason 6 prostate cancer. She's like, these are perfect opportunities to jump in and have these discussions on risk reduction and lifestyle, and we could be doing so much better as a community to help these folks out. So, Scott, what's your risk stratification process with Gleason 6? So just make sure, again, that this is the right candidate. In other words, do you ever order a, a genomic test on your Gleason 6s, oncotype test or decipher test to make sure that, yep, this is your true Gleason 6? And if you do order it and the numbers come back higher than you think, would you take action just with that alone and no germline positive you know, results or anything like that? I spent a lot of time thinking about it and talking with other folks about it. So I'm on the side of the spectrum where I don't routinely order genomic testing in patients with Gleason 6. There are very rare situations where the patient's really hemming and hawing on treatment versus surveillance and looking for every last piece of information. Mm-hmm. But we've got such unbelievably good data, including huge series out of Johns Hopkins with 1,800 men with low-risk Gleason 6 prostate cancer that go on surveillance, and the likelihood of them dying from their cancer 15 years later is 0.1%, and exactly zero had genomic testing. So one of my fears with genomic testing (laughs) is if those patients are getting genomic testing, it's a $5,000 test, and 15, 20% of them are going to get a result that says high risk. And guess what happens when you get a genomic test that says high risk? They're flipping out and they're like, I'm going to go do something. So one of my concerns is it just leads to unnecessary treatment. Now, if they come in with a genomic test that's high risk, I will still strongly recommend surveillance, but I might keep a closer eye on them. Correct, yeah. Yeah, you hear, and I spoke to Adam about this, and he says, yeah, Gio, you're overdue it. I'm a sucker for data. Just let me know. Give me as much data as you want, and then we can make informed decisions, even if it's just like, look, I think that for what I do, which is lifestyle medicine, I just want the most motivated people. And if we have information, say, well, Gleason 6, okay, wow, this is not, you know, wow, this Dr. Egner guy says not even cancer. Maybe I'm home free. I don't know. His genetic test came out high risk. Oh, no, wait, wait, I'm ready to do anything. And yeah, keep a closer eye. And sometimes these Gleason 6 guys disappear, right? So they just don't come back for follow-up and things. And I think that those guys would know that, yeah, I need to make sure that I keep coming back and, and followed. So I tend to probably overdo it, but I tend to collect as much data as I can to know as much about what they have as possible. Yeah, what are the, you bring up a good point, and it's a legit you know, concern if the name change ever happens of compliance. Are people going to keep showing up? And I think that's you know, something that should be discussed. What's, what's, what I find analogous and fascinating is 
we all have a gazillion people in our practices with high PSAs, a negative biopsy, a PIREDS4 lesion, high-grade PIN, ASAP. These are all like precancerous lesions. And you tell them to follow up, and most do, some don't. And I've never heard a urologist ever right. say, oh, my gosh, I'm really worried about those guys with previously negative biopsies showing up. But as part of the Gleason 6 nomenclature discussion, it does come up appropriately. Great. Let's segue into one of the papers that you were part or author in actually with Adam Kibble, with it's, which is the ELCO study. This is a prostate lung cancer, colon cancer, and ovarian cancer screening trial that's been um, going on for a long time, very high powered. And it showed that the, it showed the events or importance of free PSA in men that have a lower PSA, total PSA than, than four. Very interesting because most, there's still, we get a lot of PSA results that where if it's brought in from a different office where they don't even, you know, they don't even call, they don't even ask for a free PSA percentage. They're just, you know, looking for total. And in that study, uh, if I read it correctly, it showed that there is, there, there is use of getting a free PSA percentage uh, value in men that have lower than a PSA, a total PSA of four. So if you can, Scott, what's this free PSA? So it's, it sounds like it's bound, PSA is bound to something. And when it's not so bound to something, it's a higher risk. What's that about, first of all, at a very basic level? Yeah, the macro view of it is what the PSA everyone's heard of is total PSA, but there's all these other isoforms, which is a fancy medical term for all these kind of relatives or cousins of PSA. So there's free PSA, pro PSA, complex PSA, ISO PSA. And kind of like you mentioned, we're just kind of data addicts and we want to collect all the you know information we can that might be helpful to take care of a patient. And the cool thing with P with free PSA is there's a load of data that goes back a while that's that it's incredibly powerful and useful. And it's cheap and it's easily available. And somewhat shockingly, you know, if you have a mildly elevated PSA, it's way more important to know what your free PSA is rather than if your PS, total PSA is four, five, or six. Mm -hmm. And it can be even more powerful than the total PSA. And so that's why every time I'm screening someone for prostate cancer, their blood tests are total PSA and free PSA. And what's that number? So the higher the free percentage PSA, the less likely that they have prostate cancer. The lower that number, the more likely it is that they have prostate cancer. It's hard to say cutoff because I think just like PSA density, there's a spectrum there, but it used to be 25%, 20%. So if it's higher, you're fine, likely anyway. If you're if it's lower, then it's you're a higher risk. How what's the right range, if you will? And yeah. it's it does the range change based on PSA total? So if it's two versus four versus six. I missed the latter part of your question. It cut out a little. Sure. It's what's the right range uh, in the free PSA that we're looking for to say, to try to figure out and stratify the patient with whether or not they should get a biopsy because, you know, yeah. patients don't wake up in the morning and say, man, I can't wait for this prostate biopsy. Wow. This is going to make my yeah. day. I've never heard a patient say that. So we're trying to figure out who needs the biopsy. Uh, so that's why we're having the discussion. And so free percentage PSA helps us with that. So what's the right range that you're looking for to say yay or nay? Yeah, it's a great question. Kind of the middle of the road free PSA is that 20, 25% range, but I've seen it as low as 4%. I've seen it as high as on rare occasions, 60%. And so sometimes you just know it when you see it. I mean, almost every guy I see with a percent free PSA that's really low, they're getting a biopsy. But I'm in your camp. 
I look for reasons not to have to do biopsies for all the reasons you alluded to. But we've got a load of information available. And sometimes you, I even go into these online calculators. There's this PCPT risk calculator you, where you put in age, their rectal exam, family history. Have they had a previous biopsy? What's their free PSA? And it literally spits out if they're going to have a biopsy, what's the percent likelihood of finding you know, a Gleason 7 or higher cancer? It, nothing drives me crazier internally than people that do their prostate cancer screening regardless of age, regardless of anything else. When your PSA gets above four, we're going to next testing. You and I, and most people know, I mean, there are age-specific ranges. You want their family history. You got the PSA density. You got the free PSA. Mm. You got the rectal exam. You got a load of info to try to make smart decisions for guys and guide them appropriately. And then, and I should also add is that, as you know, there's a half a dozen other commercially available biomarkers in that space that are based on good science, have really good papers, you know, 4K, Phi, you know, Select MDX, XODX, you know, the My Prostate Score and others. I mean, those are valuable as well. And so in this particular paper, it sort of highlighted this PSA number of like, so now the suggestion is to make the range of total PSA between 2 to 10 Well, for context. Typically, physicians don't order a free PSA unless it's between the range of 4 to 10. The suggestion from that paper is we you should do it when the PSA is even 2, you know, between 2 and 10 of the total PSA. So when is so how often is there a PSA of 2 with a very low free percentage PSA? Is that a thing that we should be looking for and paying attention to? Relatively rare, but it does happen. And so it's valuable information for that individual. We've got, you know, 10 or more years, even longer, of really good quality data on free PSA predicting the outcome of a biopsy. What's cool about this PLCO study and some other studies that were done with a 4K score, which includes free PSA, is that those studies also showed not only does it predict the likelihood if you're having a biopsy, if you just have kind of a baseline value of your total and free PSA, it predicts the likelihood of bad prostate cancer things happening over the next 15, 20 years. So you have kind of a long lens as well on, you know, how you're going to manage that patient. So that's why it's, it, we thought it was, you know, an important contribution. Absolutely. You know, I find, Scott, that everybody's risk stratification approach is slightly not all the same. Everybody has their own, you, and that, which is frustrating for the patients. I'm a patient advocate. I think so are you. By the way, <laughs> you know, my patients have trust issues, as we said before, and they're saying, well, every doctor I go to, if he's a surgeon, all they want to do is surgery. If they, if they do biopsy, they want to do, not Scott Egner. I mean, or, and a few others. It seems like, man, it seems like you're trying to figure out how they, don't need a biopsy, how they, you know, may not need aggressive treatment, which is the exact opposite of what I think many patients experience. Your thoughts on that? Like what's happening? <laughs> of course, they're thinking how many college students they have. They're thinking that it's all money related. And I think that there is potentially some truth in that in some cases. And I'm going to talk to Mark Emberton to see soon on the podcast to see what's done in UK and how's the, what's their approach, just out of curiosity. But I think that also is like, man, if I'm a surgeon, I've worked my butt off to do this particular surgery, and I am great at this. And I, you know, and who was it that said I was dreaming 
of the surgery when I was a fellow, someone I had recently, I forgot. I was just dreaming, having dreams about how to perfect the study with Jim Hu. I was with Jim Hu and, you know, and he was my mentor and I was just dreaming of how to perfect. I mean, I love that level of passion. And if I'm going to get my prostate removed, I want that. So that's kind of what I explain to patients. What are your thoughts on the same patient, by the way, that I saw today with a Gleason 6 that he was diagnosed somewhere else? They were fear-mongering a little bit, in my opinion. You need to remove this now. This is before they knew he had cribriform or anything else. So there's a lot of that, which I don't like. So what's your, what do you think is happening out there? And what make, why, why are you different, Scott? I mean, you're, why are you so different? First of all, I'd say preach, Gio. I'm with you. It's like nails on a chalkboard when I hear those types of things of, you know, I went to someone and they're a radiation doc and they told me I had to have radiation or I went to a surgeon and they said, I'm a surgeon, you have to have surgery. I mean, some honestly and truly believe their treatment is the best treatment. Trying to be objective about it, I'm not aware of any convincing evidence for the garden variety patient who warrants treatment that one is quote unquote better than the other. And sometimes I think it's kind of, you know, just makes the conversation easier and simpler and it's not as long-winded. I try to have these long, thorough discussions with patients about all their options. Sometimes I think I'm doing them a wonderful service. And sometimes I think it's a disservice where I'm just confusing the heck out of them and they just want you to make that decision for them, which is often very challenging and I try to avoid because if they have three or four good options with different pros and cons, who am I to assign one to them as the quote unquote best mm. option of those. Wow. Yeah, you know, like I think guys at NYU are very similar in very high academic institutions I find that are they take that approach as well. But it's it could be frustrating for for patients when they and and it's and you know, it's the C word. You know, what am I missing? You know, wow, maybe, you know, it's just instilling fear and anxiety and sometimes it's unnecessary. I feel re I often feel really bad for these patients. You know, they're doing the right thing, meeting with different folks and they are just getting mixed messages or getting recruited into things, or it, it'd be great if it was simpler and easy. I appreciate you having this conversation and getting the messaging out. You know, final words, if you're diagnosed with an early stage prostate cancer, your outlook is extraordinarily bright. There are rare instances where it may not be that way. Time is rarely, you know, of the essence. Meet with good folks. I, I hand out some of your material to every single patient. They get it before they even come and see me for their first oh, visit. Thank you. There are a lot of, you know, lifestyle supplement exercise things that can be focused on. And again, our group's hypothesis and what we're pushing is that, you know, I think we can do things better by, you know, kind of relabeling things or considering things differently. So I appreciate you again, having this discussion and it was a true pleasure. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thanks so much. Thank you everyone for listening. And I'll see you at the next episode. Have an amazing day. Talk to you soon. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. and It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, 
AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.